Nadia Sullenberg presents Casual Friday. Written and read by Thaddeus Allenberg. Beyond the Limit's Edge. The Attack. In its first decade of running, the tour of Appalachia was plagued with immense fraud and misconduct. It had lost the respect of the cycling community and had been reduced to a form of punishment within the national teams. Race promoter and co-founder Marcel Bacconi had been driven out of the tour and competitive cycling altogether, leaving his brother Enzo to run and promote the race his way, with integrity, innovation, and above all, a love and passion for cycling. However, his dream was put on hold due to World War II and the interest and efforts of the USA. After the fighting, with Europe scraping together funds for a revival of their former celebrated Grand Tours, Enzo Bacconi sprang at the opportunity. From the ashes, a new era. The first tour of Appalachia after the war ran in June of 1946 from Birmingham, Alabama to New York City. With news of Marcel Bacconi's exit and the European tours and classics still struggling, cyclists from every corner of the globe showed up in attendance and did so with fresh legs ready to race. There was newcomer and war hero Alberto Vincenzi, who, after Germany took Paris, aided in the daring escape of five French school teachers from the internment of Nazi-occupied France. The fearless Italian freedom fighter made five different harrowing getaways out of the city and through the countryside on his bicycle, each time with a different teacher sitting on his handlebars. A photo of Vincenzi during one of his brave rescues, which has since become an iconic image from the war, was featured on the cover of a best-selling alternative World War II photo book from the 1960s, entitled Roads to Nowhere, Roads to Everywhere. Joining Vincenzi in the stacked field was Edwin O'Dell, an Olympic track cyclist from New Hampshire in his highly publicized go at road racing. O'Dell's years on the track had earned him the dubious title, Always Second, because since turning professional, the celebrated bridesmaid of the velodrome had never taken the top step at the podium, or the bottom step, or any other position for that matter. Hundreds and hundreds of races over nine years, always second. However, the local favorite on stage one was the Alabama born and bred Will Willard, who had never ridden a bicycle before, but heard it was hard to forget. His logic was considered revolutionary for the time and the region. Returning to the race was the 27-year-old cycling marvel, Romain Jacquinot, who before the start of the tour had announced his retirement, effective at the end of the season. Also racing in his final tour of Appalachia was the Belgian Jacobus Dameron. The fighty Walloon had narrowly escaped the war with his life when captured by a cell of French resistance fighters after they found Dameron in a dance hall, performing a satirical German number with marionettes and an exaggerated accent. The irony was lost on the band of fighters, and they lunged at Dameron from the audience, wrestling him to the stage. 
After three weeks of pure head-to-head -head cycling, with the first ever climb on the legendary Mount Mangler in western North Carolina, it would be the young Italian hero from Paris, Alberto Vincenzi, who captured his first of three consecutive Tour of Appalachia victories, becoming the first cyclist in the race's history to take the honor. The man from the track, Edwin O'Dell, had a tremendous ride, which included two stage victories, one at Turner's Cove and the other on the hilltop finish of Grandfather's Knob, but would find himself 22 minutes short of victory and once again finishing in second place. The bottom step of the podium went to the American Norman Buckley. Jacques Renault took a surprising win on the Tour of Appalachia's first ever individual time trial, held on stage 14 after the rest day, but would lose out on a top 10 finish after crashing into two separate fields of sheep on the same stage. Dameron concluded his Tour of Appalachia career with an impressive showing and a ninth place finish but was stripped of his Stage 2 victory when instead of signing his name in the writer's pre-sign-in log, he playfully sketched out a self-portrait. A reporter from the summit wrote that although Dameron challenged the ruling, claiming the drawing could very well serve as a facial signature, it was later deemed by race organizers to not look much like him. Aided by the financial assistance of Sig Abbott, president and founder of the Abbott Motor Company, Enzo Bacconi had secured ample funds, allowing him to set the first place award at an unprecedented $70,000. News of the staggering purse caused such attention that global bike sales increased by 10%, and the field of competitors had to be capped at 150 riders. The Abbott Motor Company had become the tour's chief sponsor and would remain the race's principal patron until 1964, after the death of Sig Abbott and the promotion of his son, Sig Abbott II, to the position of company CEO. However, the namesake and successor's first order of business would be to sever ties with the long-running cycling race after a nearly 20-year partnership in order to pursue the home and kitchen appliance market, specifically with the company's line of two-stroke food processors. The contributions of the Abbott Motor Company changed how cycling races were promoted and paved the way for modern-day race organization as well as team construction. With the country thriving in the midst of a post-war economic boom, national cycling teams were reserved primarily for the Olympics, and instead, teams were formed and financed for the first time ever by non-cycling corporate sponsors, changing the face of cycling forever. Riders were paid hefty salaries and in turn rode at the year's major road races and promoted their sponsors' products. At the start of the 1950s, the growing hamburger restaurant chain Jolly Burger installed the first ever bicycle-only drive-through window at their California and Missouri stores, which they promoted by forming the Jolly Burger Cycling Team, led by champion climber and all-around cycling ace from Sonora, Melvin Ferris. The team made their first appearance at the Tour of Appalachia in 1950 and were a fixed part in the yearly runnings until 1957, a span which earned them an astonishing 49 stage wins, two black and white striped jerseys, which were awarded to the winner of the sprint classification, a competition first held at the Tour of Appalachia in 1952, and one variegated jersey for Ferris, who won the Tour in 1953 and celebrated by crossing the final finishing line in New York alongside his teammates in formation, posing as they took a bite from their sponsor's newly introduced Giant Jolly Burger, 
featuring an unheard of two slices of cheese. In the 1960s, Max Van Dorn captured 14 Grand Tour stage wins and one Tour of Appalachia victory in 1963 while riding for the Uncle Samuel's Instant Grits team and was subsequently featured in a summer-long run of national advertisements on television. One ad famously displayed a rustic Van Dorn in a straw hat and overalls with a litter of cycling pups running up to the breakfast table of their one-room cabin before uttering the company's popular catchphrase, mmm, it's grits, in his heavy, unmistakable Dutch accent. 1965 witnessed the tour of Appalachia's first brewery-sponsored cycling team with the Bristol Suds Brewing Squad, led by two-time winner of the variegated jersey in 1967 and 1969, Bernard Mounier. However, despite his victories, the champion Frenchman nicknamed Mr. Featherpedals was abruptly released from his contract with the Tennessee Tri-Cities manufacturer in 1972 when, during a post-race interview after his stage win in Pucksville, Pennsylvania, Monier was handed a victory bottle of his sponsor's beer, which he, following a celebratory swig, spat out and exclaimed, Uh, piss. Cycling historian and documentarian Jeff Hansen wrote of this corporate influence as a pivotal time for cycling in a 1999 article entitled The Pressure Behind the Needle. What Enzo Bacconi did would revolutionize the sport. It gave competitive cycling the staying power by taking control away from the whims and policies of a government and putting it into the hands of the private sector. Not as an act of greed like displayed by his brother, but as a necessary action to ensure the organization's survival. Although some may retrospectively view his approach detrimental, especially 50 years later given the persuasive power of corporate America. Nonetheless, the Tour of Appalachia had set a precedent for which competitive cycling abroad would follow. With the introduction of corporate sponsors, teams, and advertising serving as the underlining structure for the Tour of Appalachia, the quest for victory in the variegated jersey remained unimpeded for decades providing the cycling world and its fans with years of racing splendor. This was without question the start of a new era. Triumph. The period from the beginning of the 1950s to the end of the 1980s is considered the golden age of the Tour of Appalachia. These decades were filled with extraordinary feats and pure domination. The top two performing teams running the Tour at the start of this period were the Sunshine All Risk Insurance Company team and the French Re Rice Pudding team. These two squads provided the Tour of Appalachia with its first heroic rivalry. From Team Sunshine, there was the Rhode Island GOAT, Gordon Tenbrook, and from Team Re, Cyril Perez, of the famed Perio Pedigree. The 1954 Tour of Appalachia witnessed the first meeting between these two kings of the mountains, who had already achieved several career stage wins, Perez in Europe and Tenbrook on the roads of Appalachia. Glued to each other's wheels for three straight weeks and finishing two hours ahead of the rest of the field, the American Tenbrook, 
finished just 12 seconds in front of the Laroon native after gaining a 33-second advantage during his Stage 4 victory on Clapper's Dome in East Tennessee. However, the following year, it was the famed Frenchman that was victorious when Tenbrook came unhitched along the first-ever Circuit Mountain stage, which ran along New Hampshire's Lake Crescent Mountain. Unfortunately, at the beginning of what was to be the fabled Round 3 between these two cycling giants, a 1956 tour departed from Savannah, Georgia, under less-than-favorable circumstances. After a pre-race moonlit water tubing accident in April, which involved a drunken and naked Tenbrook and his prized 22-foot beached Contracraft runabout, aptly named Out of the Saddle, the Rhode Island Goat was off form, and although he managed to claim a week one stage victory in the McMaw Valley, Tenbrook retired from the 1956 Tour of Appalachia after stage 11, allowing Perez to claim his second consecutive patchwork jersey. Fortunately, to the delight of the promoters and fans, the 1957 Tour would see the closest overall victory to date and would be measured by a mere two seconds after 2,433 miles of riding. It was a colossal battle between Tenbrook and Perez without a single sign of either champion yielding, no matter what the test. The Devil's Mistress, the loose gravel climb of Tingler's Rock, and the dangerous descent of Copperpot Road from the summit of Chomper Ridge. Nothing could break the seemingly identical rides of the astonishing adversaries. The first two weeks of racing observed a number of mountaintop sprints between the Frenchman and the American, trading stage victories back and forth, with the finish atop Ranger Mountain being so close and heavily contested, it would result in the Tour of Appalachia's first and only stage tie as well as the implementation of photos taken at the line of every succeeding stage of the renowned race. In New York, though, it was the national favorite, Gordon the Rhode Island Goat Tenbrook, standing atop the podium covered in the race's coveted patches. Though in spite of Tenbrook's famous 1957 victory, Cyril Perez would take the title the following two years, making him the first-ever four-time winner of the Appalachian and second on the all-time list of most wins. The 1960s were dominated by the French, most notably Francois Dumont of the Pearl's Tooth Powder team and Louis Lejoie, who rode for Williams Taffy, as well as the earlier-mentioned Mr. Featherpedal's Bernard Mounier. The majority of the 1960s Tour of Appalachia titles were awarded to Dumont and Lejoie, each taking two variegated jerseys. But it was their clash atop the iconic Devil's Mistress on Stage 8 of the 1965 Tour that would be branded the battle throughout cycling lore. Filmmaker Lorna Jones, who based her 2009 film Through Smoke and Mirrors on the relationship of Dumont and Lejoie, said the following with regard to their storied duel. Everything had culminated to this point, the two charged up the hill, dancing on their pedals and trading the lead. Together they broke free of the tree line and entered a gauntlet of screaming fans. The friends taunted one another, staring into each other's eyes and maintaining the accelerations. Enveloped in a tunnel of noise, they gritted their teeth and bore the pain as they held on to every last ounce of energy and willpower. At the summit, it was Lejoie, the younger of the two, that dug deeper and found that bit of extra. That's something special to pull ahead of Dumont and take the victory. 
They celebrated the fight in each other's arms, tears in their eyes before an unexpected and, might I add, highly photographed open mouth kiss. In the 1970s, the tour played host to a rivalry of a different kind. It was one that spurred from within the disputed ranks of the ego-filled Blitz Diet Soda team. With athlete endorsements, care of both cycling and non-cycling sponsors, including but not limited to television, radio, and print at an all-time high, the end of the 1970s witnessed the rise of the cycling superstar. They were wealthy and constantly in the media spotlight. Headed by team director and former rider Troy Hurst, the team of Blitz Diet Soda was compiled of the world's undisputed cycling champions of their discipline. Notably, there was Thomas Duvet, the French sprinter, Mario Bambino, the Italian lead-out, as well as the boastful Dominique Simenon from Belgium and the equally bumptious Telly Morris from North Carolina, both general classification riders. After the first seven stages of the 1977 Tour of Appalachia, Telly Morris had captured two stage wins and pulled ahead of the overall contenders by 16 and a half minutes. It was evident that the team would ride for Morris and keep him in the variegated jersey all the way to New York. However, his teammate, Dominique Simenon, went against team orders and on the short but steep stage 12 climb of Fuzzy's Hill, attacked Morris after the team leader showed signs of suffering. Simenon took the stage win and ensured reporters that the patchwork jersey would be his. Why lead out for a weaker rider, Simenon told journalists after the victory, especially when this mug would look better on a cereal box than that haggard sack of bones still huffing up the hill. After the rest day, though, Morris was back on form, and the two teammates fought northward, trading the esteemed jersey after every stage. It was a contest of contests that would not be decided until the final stage and the run into Central Park. Bunched up with the sprinters, the Belgian and the American raced wheel to wheel for the 77 victory. It was a recipe for disaster, resulting in a dish cooked to perfection and a massive crash at the line involving 30 riders. Simenon and Morris pulled themselves from the fallen men and dove for the line. It remains the most astonishing finish of any tour of Appalachia. In the end, the two challengers were awarded the same time for the stage, and the overall victory went to the man who began the day in the variegated jersey, Telly Morris. Defeat. Just as the tour of Appalachia has presented unparalleled showings of cycling magnificence, so has it offered countless displays of punishment and unfathomable loss. Crippling mechanical failures, devastating crashes, and crushing defeats have afflicted riders of the tour for years. And in a race where simply finishing is a victory in and of itself, it's easy to consider all of the road's pitfalls. Acclaimed sports writer Clint Holbach famously wrote regarding the tour's unforgiving nature. Misery is more than common in this arena. It's downright expected. Victories on the tour can be won or lost on a descent. They're harsh and will reveal a rider's limit at a moment's notice. Before the construction of thousands of miles of roads, bridges, and dams throughout the Appalachian Mountains, Thanks to President Roosevelt's New Deal and the Works Projects Administration Program, the Tour of Appalachia consisted of primarily dirt and gravel racing surfaces in the hills, 
which made descents extremely treacherous. In the 1930s and 40s, some riders used stabilizers on their back wheels until they were banned from the race in 1951. New roads meant quicker speeds and greater danger. During the descent along Apple Brandy Road on Stage 5 of the 1959 tour, the Italian missile, Bruno Romani, cut the apex of a right-hand bend and was sent down the mountain out of control. He returned to the road midway down, covered head-to-toe in poison ivy. In 1972, on the second day of two back-to-back mountain stages, after taking victory on the first, the pride of the Blue Ridge Mountains Wilmington Creek champion Jack Spruce put on an absolute clinic during the ascent of Satan's nephew, pulling ahead of the breakaway by a whopping five minutes where he found himself in the virtual variegated jersey. After cresting the Category 1 climb, the North Carolina native snatched several newspapers from a bystander to stuff in the front of his jersey to protect his chest from the cool air experience on the descent. When he became distracted by his photo on the front page, taken from the previous stage's victory, he lost control of his bike and ran off the road. Spruce was later quoted saying, I was thinking so far ahead, victory in New York, and had forgotten about yesterday's win. Maybe it was the elevation, but I thought I was staring at a paper from the future. In 1980, on the tricky descent of Triplet's Dome, German writer Axel Rosenberg broke late at the famous Crow's Bend and ran wide. He was sent screaming into someone's backyard where he smashed into an abandoned car tire and went flying over his handlebars before splashing into a duck-filled above-ground swimming pool. Anguish falls upon the flat as well, like the previously mentioned mayhem on the 1977 tour. In 1985, after taking what he believed was the Stage 20 victory into Dutch Springs, New York, champion sprinter and six-time Grand Tour stage winner Pat Hiller celebrated prematurely by phoning each of his relatives to share the presumed good news. Afterward, he phoned his high school sweetheart and asked her for her hand in marriage. A moment later, Hiller was informed by his team that not only did he not win the stage, he had in fact finished fourth. A devastated Hiller then called back his relatives, who were already in the midst of planning him a party, and broke the news. When he called back his high school sweetheart, she informed Hiller that not only had she been married for 15 years with three children, but that her husband was an amazing lover, and she always thought Hiller was a bit nerdy. Whether triumph or defeat, this was cycling at its purest. And although the aid of corporate sponsors was a welcomed addition to the tour of Appalachia and competitive cycling at large, the pressure placed on the riders by both themselves, struggling in an ever-shrinking margin of victory and performance, and a benefactor expecting results, would find the most unfortunate answer in the advent of technology and medical advancement in a world on the cusp of a new millennium. It would be a stain of cataclysmic proportion that would rock the revered race to its foundations. This has been a production of Thaddeus Ellenberg's Casual Friday. Written and read by Thaddeus Ellenberg. With an introduction by Nicole Kalasich. And artwork by Adrian Lobel. This series is independently produced by Thaddeus Ellenberg and Will Scovel. 
To find more episodes and information, visit our website at casualfridaypodcast.org or email us at contact.casualfriday at gmail.com. 